And I encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We are almost done with this book. We're not going to finish tonight. We'll finish next week. But this evening we find before us verses 17, 18, and 19 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. So let me read these three verses for us, reminding you as ever, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the living God. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Beloved of God, the word of the Lord is to be desired more than gold, even much fine gold. So let's ask the Lord now by his spirit to impart the riches of his word to us. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your word clearly teaches us that the wise man is not to boast in his wisdom, nor the mighty man in his might, nor the rich man in his riches, but that we are to boast as your people in this, that we understand and know you, that you are the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For it is in these things that you delight, O Lord. And so we pray this evening that you would make us such a people, a people who rightly know you as their loving just and righteous God, and a people who boast not in themselves or any gift that you've given us, but in you alone. Use your word to that end, we pray, and we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's interesting as we've walked through the book of 1 Timothy, there's a theme that comes up again and again, and I was a little shocked by it, actually, once I put it all together having come to the closing verses of Paul's letter to Timothy as he's overseeing the church in Ephesus, that the concept of wealth and money comes up again and again all throughout this book. And so what we're reminded of as we walk through this little epistle is that how we think about our money, how we interact with our money and use it to the glory of God and to the benefit of others is extremely important to God himself. And I don't just want to make that claim. Hey, there's been uh, times where the topic of money has come up all throughout this book. I actually want to show this to you. So if you can turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, we're not going to spend all night here, but just to prove this to you, we see in 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, uh, as Paul is addressing the women, he tells them, not to flaunt their wealth in what they wear, but instead to do what? To let their good works adorn them. That they should be known by that, not how they put their wealth on display by what they wear. And so again, what? This concerns money. Then jump down to chapter 3 and verse 3. What does Paul say about the elders? He says one of the qualifications for them is that they are not what? That they are not lovers of money. Jump to the next verse in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
And what do we see there? Another qualification for elders is that they manage their household well. Well, at least in part, part of that management is what? How he stewards the finances for the family. That's at least part of that. Then when we jump to the qualifications for deacons, same chapter, chapter 3 and verse 8, we see that Paul says that deacons should not be what? They should not be greedy for dishonest gain. Again, what does that concern? Money, riches. Then if we jump to 1 Timothy chapter 5, in this section where he talks about widows, he says that true widows will not be what? Self-indulgent in how they live their lives. Now obviously these widows would probably not have had much by way of money, but a good test to see if they were true widows was how they used what meager finances they had. And so again, this concerns money. Then when we jump to the chapter that we find before us this evening, and in verse 5 of chapter 6, we remember that Paul said of the false teachers that they claim to teach the gospel and have a presentation of godliness, though it's just a veneer, to what end? So that they might enrich themselves financially. And then if we jump to the next verse in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 6, Paul turns to the entire congregation and admonishes them all to be content in the Lord and with their financial situation, the financial situation that he has given them. And now this evening, we turn to verses 17 through 19. So again, what do we see? How we handle our finances, how we think about them is extremely important to the Lord. He wants us to be good stewards. He doesn't want us to idolize wealth. And so Paul turns to this topic yet again in verses 17 through 19. And his audience this time, who he's telling Timothy to teach in this regard, is the rich, the wealthy Christians who are at the church in Ephesus. And I think, I don't think I need to tell this to you, but all of us in this room would likely fall under that category of those who are wealthy, who have an abundance of financial resources, way more than we need. And so we would be considered under this category of those who are wealthy. And so we have Paul instructing Timothy, here's how you're to teach the wealthy Christians at Ephesus. And so brothers and sisters, this is how we need to think about our wealth and about the Lord to whom all things belong. And so Paul is going to instruct Timothy to instruct the rich under two headings. First of all, we're going to see the temptations of the wealthy Christian in the first half of verse 17. We're going to see the unique temptations that wealthy Christians are prone to. And then secondly, we'll see the true treasures of the wealthy Christian. Really, they're the true treasures of every Christian. But the true treasures of the wealthy Christian in the second half of verse 17 and then in verses 18 and 19 as well. And it's my prayer that not only would the Lord sustain my voice this evening so I don't lose it before the sermon's over, but by God's grace that we would rightly treasure him so that as a result we would then steward our earthly treasures as he has called us to. So having said that, let's look first then, brothers and sisters, at the temptations of the wealthy Christian. Look at the first half of verse 17 with me. As for the rich in this present age... Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. We're just going to push pause right there and pick up in the next point, the rest of verse 17. Now, I want you to notice right out of the gate, 
there are actually wealthy Christians, there are rich Christians to be addressed in Ephesus. I think that's a really helpful thing to remind ourselves of, lest we look back at verses 6 through 10 of chapter 6 and misunderstand them and think, oh, Paul is commanding all Christians to be poor, to give themselves over to poverty, to give away everything that they possess. No, that's not commanded at all. And so there actually are those who have more than they need in the church at Ephesus. And so the reality is there are going to be wealthy Christians. So how are they to be instructed? Again, this hits all of us in this room. Well, first of all, Paul says they need to be aware of two unique temptations that they face. Two temptations. First of all, the first temptation they face is to think more highly of themselves than they ought to. You see that again in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. And we see this happen all the time, don't we? We see this happen in our own hearts. We certainly see it happen in other people. The Lord gives us some blessing. The Lord gives us more wealth than we need. And what do we start to believe? The lies that, well, it's because I'm so incredible, right? That's why the Lord gave me these blessings. I've worked so hard. Now, no doubt the Lord uses means to give us what we have. But the problem is we start to get an inflated view of ourselves because the Lord has deigned to give us whatever the blessing is. And so we start to believe this lie, man, I've really got it together. If people could just figure out how to live like I do, then the Lord would shower these blessings upon them and they would be wealthy. And so there's this temptation to completely lose sight of the fact that it's God who gives these gifts. It's God who gives these treasures. God is the one ultimately who makes men what they are, men and women, and makes any distinction between them. He is the one who gives, as Job said, and he is the one who takes away. So blessed be his name. No, our temptation is to glorify ourselves in the midst of that. And it's amazing how many times God has to warn his people in the scriptures against this. Probably the best example, I'm not going to go to all the examples that I ran across in scriptures I was studying, but the one that jumps out is you remember as the Lord is bringing his people into the promised land. You remember in the book of Deuteronomy, he tells them in chapter 8, verse 17 and 18, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And then the Lord takes it a step further in the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 4, and he says, also don't believe the lie that I've given this all to you because you're righteous, because of your righteousness. It's not because of anything in you is what the Lord is saying. And yet the temptation is going to be to think, Look at all that my hands have done. And so the Lord, knowing us perfectly as fallen human beings, says, I know you're going to be tempted to this. When I bring you into the promised land, and you're going to be tempted to believe the lie that you brought all this about, and so then you get to start to become really prideful. And the Lord says, do not do that. And that's an appropriate warning for us as well, isn't it, brothers and sisters? It's an appropriate warning for us because... We are prone to this temptation as well. 
So here's the question. How do we impart fight against this temptation to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to when the Lord blesses us with wealth. Well, first of all, we ought to remind ourselves, as James does in James chapter 1, verse 17, that every good and perfect gift comes from who? Our Heavenly Father, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And since that's true, since all of these gifts ultimately come from Him, we're to ask ourselves the question even as Paul does to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, what do you have that you didn't receive? And so if you did then receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And if I can add on to there, as if you worked for it, as if you earned it, as if you merited it. And so brothers and sisters, we must constantly remind ourselves as Paul does in Romans eleven thirty six, 36, that it is from him and through him and to him that all things come and go. And as we do so, we will see that it's improper to boast in ourselves concerning our wealth. Rather, who ought we to boast in? We ought to boast in the Lord who has graciously given us all that we have. And we have to constantly be on guard because we're so prone to believe the lie of our own self-importance. Now, that's just the first temptation. The second temptation that the wealthy Christian faces is to trust in their wealth. Again, look at what Paul says. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. See, the next temptation is to actually trust these resources that God has given you. And I love the warning that Patrick Fairbairn, he summarizes this warning so beautifully. He was a Scottish minister who wrote a commentary many moons ago on 1 Timothy, and he says, to trust in riches is to make uncertainty one's confidence. Doesn't that just like clarify it so much? What are we doing when we're trusting in our wealth? We're trying to put our confidence in something that's uncertain. Why? Because our wealth, and inflation will remind you of this real quick, won't it? <laughs> and the swings in the stock market. Our wealth is here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's uncertain. We didn't bring it into the world, as Paul said earlier in this chapter, and we won't take it out of the world with us either. And so we're not to trust our riches because they're uncertain. And so I think about the way that Jesus warns in his parable us not to build our lives on anything other than him in Matthew chapter 7. Because the foolish man that builds his house upon the sand, what is he doing? He's building his house on something that's shifty, it's fickle, it's not solid, it's not substantial, so that when the storms of life come, and come they will, the house comes tumbling down. Those of you who learned that song growing up, the foolish man built his house upon the sand, and the rains came down, and the floods come up, and the house came tumbling down, right? And that's what we're doing when we're building our lives upon the uncertainty of riches and putting our hope and trust there. Instead of in God, when the storms of life come, we just get swept away. Another good example of this that you're probably already thinking of is Jesus' parable of the wealthy man in Luke chapter 12. You remember how this guy lives his life? He's like, I've got all of this wealth, but let me build even bigger barns. And so he finally builds the bigger barns. He feels like, all right, I have enough. He's ready to retire. 
So he tells himself in Luke chapter 12, 19, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But what happens? God comes to him and says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? He was foolish for putting his hope in the uncertainty of riches. They're as uncertain as life itself. And so the Lord warns us, do not trust in your wealth. It's not a sure foundation. It's fickle, and it will let you down. Now, here's the sad reality. As, as often as the Lord warns us in Scripture to not give in to this lie, to not give in to this temptation, the sad reality is, brothers and sisters, we give in to the temptation all the time, don't we? We give in to the temptation all the time to trust our wealth. And so what are we to do? I hope you already know what I'm going to tell you to do. We're to repent, to acknowledge this as sin. Because what are we doing? We're breaking the first commandment, putting something before the Lord. And so we're then to turn away from that and look to the Lord Jesus, who never once trusted in riches. Not once. He may have been tempted. He probably was tempted, but he never did. And he did that in our place. And on the cross, what does he do? He pays the penalty for the ways that you and I have broken the first commandment and trusted in wealth instead of God so that there's no punishment left for us. And then here's the thing. Let us then bask in the riches that are ours in God giving himself to us in Christ and trust that as we fellowship with him and commune with him, as we're doing right now, and as we do throughout the week in family worship and private worship, that he will lessen and lessen our dependence on the things of this world and increase our trust and faith and hope in him. Our confidence is that he will do that because as Philippians 1 verse 6 says, he who began this good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So having been warned now, by Paul about the temptations of the wealthy Christian, let's look secondly at the true treasures of the wealthy Christian. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 17, and then we'll go from there. You know what? I'm going to read the whole verse. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So do you see the contrast? Paul says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches that are here today and gone tomorrow. Instead, put your hope in the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, in whom there is no shadow of turning and changing. Look to him. Hope in him. Not in the things of this world. Because he's not like wealth. He's the only sure foundation that you can build your life upon. And notice, not only is he immutable, not mutable, he is also, look at verse 17 again, the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So do you see what Paul is saying? Not only does God not change, but Paul's saying God alone is actually the one who is ultimately wealthy or rich because everything belongs to him. He's the one that created it. He's sovereign over it. And so all things are at his disposal. And so here's the reality. If we have anything 
and we're actually able to enjoy that thing, who's the one who both gave the thing to us and the ability to enjoy it? It's God. Both of those things are important, by the way. Don't you know people that have a lot of things in their lives, but they can't enjoy them? The Lord is the one who gives the enjoyment of those things. And so God is ultimately our treasure, our greatest treasure. Because why? He's given himself to us in Christ, in love. It was eternally the Father's plan to send his Son. And that's what we celebrate in the Advent season. That he's come to live, to die, to raise from the dead, to intercede on our behalf. And so Christ himself is our greatest treasure. That if we have him, we have everything. But here's the incredible thing. Even though Paul could stop there, even though the Lord could stop there and say, look, I gave you myself in my son, he gives us even more treasures. Behold the generosity of our God. <laughs> and so we see the treasures that he continues to give us then in verse 18. So look there with me where Paul says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So what's one of the riches that God gives us? It's that we're actually able to do good. They are to do good. That which God commands, this is a command here, he then gives to us. And how does God make it so that we're able to do good? He actually makes us good by his grace. Because he is goodness itself. And so as he gives himself to us in his son, and we as it were possess him, he transforms us so that we live the way that we actually ought to live. So that we're transformed and reflect his goodness and are restored to the goodness in which he originally created us. Now that happens progressively and it doesn't happen perfectly in this life. But he actually makes us good so that we do good. Now here's the question, what does that doing good look like? Well, look at what Paul says in the next section in verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. Because he's making us good by his spirit, by his grace, we then do good works. What are those good works? We obey the Ten Commandments. We love the law of the Lord. We love our neighbor. We want to show them the love that God has shown humbly to us. So what's happening? We're progressively living as God created us to live here by the gracious work of God's spirit within us. But how often do we think about that being one of the riches that God has given us? The fact that I am able to do good by his grace because in my fallen state I was not. And so I'm actually able to obey him. Again, not perfectly, but progressively. Do you think of that as one of the treasures that God has given you? Because it is. It is to live the way that he created us to live. Now, Paul gets even more specific and says, here's what being rich in good works will look like. Look at the tail end of verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So Paul says, here's how Christians are to keep the 10th commandment. They don't make God their money. And so they don't break the first commandment, thou shall have no other gods before me. And since they don't make God their money, they don't covet what their neighbor has, thus breaking the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. Instead, since they know that God himself is their ultimate treasure, their ultimate good, they are satisfied with him 
and whatever he gives them. And out of the abundance that God richly provides, they then do what? They're generous. They share. They're ready to do it. They rejoice to do it. It would be totally inappropriate for me to just skip over this and not commend you, Sovereign Grace, for how well you do this. You know, one of the complaints that I frequently get from folks at the church is a complaint that I love to hear. You know, when those meal schedules go out, they get filled so fast that I don't have an opportunity to sign up. Because, you know, as people have children or there's a medical emergency, we want to alleviate the burden of having to cook all the time. And so many of us in this room have been recipients of that. And you're so quick and eager to be generous and to help out and to provide that not everybody gets a chance to sign up. That's a good problem to have. Or I think about this past Thanksgiving. I had individuals come up to me and say, Pastor Jason, can you tell me of any family in the church that needs help with groceries for Thanksgiving? Who can I buy a turkey for? Who can I bless so that I make sure that they have a happy Thanksgiving together with their family? Who can I invite over? I get asked these kind of questions. I'm already being asked about Christmas. What families can we come alongside of that that are in need so that we can shower them with the blessings that God has given us because we know he's blessed us to be a blessing to others. I have an entire grace group at the church asking me that question. And so, Sovereign Grace, I commend you by God's grace for your generosity in light of the blessings that God has given you. And here's the thing. Who handles their wealth this way? I'll tell you who. It's only those who know that their life is not in their possessions. Who know that all the good things that they enjoy come from the hand of their loving Father. And since He is so generous towards them, they have the privilege of then being generous towards others who are truly in need. And so what do we see? We see that generosity is the reflex of those who know how generous God has been towards them. It's not dissimilar, by the way, to how Jesus talks about love. In Luke chapter 7, verse 47, remember how Jesus in that unique context says, he who has been forgiven much loves much. Well, it's the same thing with generosity. When we understand how generous God has been towards us and how undeserving we are of that grace and generosity, It is our joy to then give and be gracious and generous towards others and to share abundantly, not begrudgingly, but because we actually delight in it. Now, Paul says that's not the only motive that wealthy Christians have to be generous. Notice that he gives us another motive in verse 19. Look there with me. He says, thus, storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You see, the wealthy Christian understands that though wealth promises life, and I can make you happy, this is what wealth says to us. If you just get this, if you just get this much money, if you just have this net worth, you can know security, you can know peace, I can give you life. Even though wealth tempts us to believe those lies, the Christian knows that that's not true. They understand that God himself is their life. Their life is hid with Christ, says Paul in Colossians 3, verse 4. And that by doing good for the glory of God and the good of their neighbor, that they are storing up treasures for themselves in heaven. 
By the way, lest you think, well, that seems like a very selfish motive. No, it's not. Jesus, through, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you remember this, he tells them, do this good thing, and your Father, who sees what you do in secret, will what? He will reward you. You do it to please him, to get rewards from him, as it were. Not as the Pharisees do, so that other people would stand back and go, well done, bravo. Jesus says they've already received their reward. Because they're looking for it from other people. But Christians look for their reward from God. Because we understand, by doing so, we are storing up treasures for ourselves in heaven. Now I know the next question that everybody wants to ask. Because I'm asking the same question. What do those treasures look like? Come on, Jason, tell us. What are these treasures that we're storing up for ourselves? And I'll just be honest with you. You can come talk to me afterwards. I have my theories. But at the end of the day, I don't know. And it doesn't really matter what they are. Because you know what? I trust Jesus. I know you trust Jesus as well. And he says that I want these rewards. And so if Jesus says, you want this, then I'm, yeah, that's what I want. So I'm going to pursue that. So I want you to stop and think about the incredible generosity and kindness of God here. Because what is he actually rewarding us for the good works that he works in us? Right? I mean, from beginning to end, it's his grace. He's the one that elects us in eternity past, lovingly gives us to the Son. He's the one who, when we're dead in our transgressions and sins, brings us to life by giving us the gift of faith freely. And then he's the one that strengthens us, empowers us by the Holy Spirit to do good works. And then he says, and I'm going to reward you for that. It's just grace upon grace upon grace. I love how Augustine puts this. He says that God crowns his own gifts. In other words, he works those good works in us, and then he puts a crown on it. Here's the best example I can give to you of that in life. I think this every time my kids do this at my birthday or at Christmas. Children, have you ever done this where you have something, some toy or gift that your parents have given you long ago, maybe it was a birthday, and you take it and you wrap it up and you put it under the Christmas tree and then your parents open it and what do they do? They say, oh, thank you so much. And, oh, this is wonderful. It's so thoughtful of you. It's very sweet of you. Don't misunderstand me. But that's essentially what God does towards us as he crowns the gifts that he gives us. I'm the one who gave you the gift. I'm the one who sustains you so you don't lose it because you would if it were up to you. And then I actually reward you as you give it back to me. Behold, the generosity, the kindness of our God. He's so generous. And so brothers and sisters, to glorify our Father in heaven, we too should be generous. That we might glorify him, put his character on display, and benefit those around us. And by doing so, guess what? We fight off, by God's grace, the temptations that accompany wealth. To think that because we have it, we're somehow better than everybody else. Or to think that we can trust in these uncertain riches, and instead we can revel in our true riches. God, having given himself to us in Christ, and by doing good works, like using our wealth to benefit other people, to share when we know people have need, all the while knowing that by God's grace we are storing up treasure for ourselves in heaven. Because the reality is there is no one, no one more wealthy, 
or more generous than our great God. And so by his grace, may we use our wealth, not ultimately to please ourselves, but to please him and to benefit those around us. Make us such a people, Lord, we pray for Jesus' sake, and we ask these things in his name. Amen.